Greetings, everyone. You're listening to KYRS Medical Expo Can at 88.1 and 92.3 FM. And this is Art Hour. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Malson. And I'm your other host, Eric Woodard. Eric, uh, I'm going to let you introduce the guest and also kind of where we're at today. But as I think I said before at one time, I think I'm going to need to get a bag of popcorn and <laughs> kind of listen in because uh, our guest uh, and you have a connection and are kind of kindred spirits. So, yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, in the background, you may hear birds and cars and everything else. We are in the grass outside of Corbin Art Center, uh, part of our uh, COVID files, as we <laughs> are trying to find ways to socially distance outside and stay safe. Our guest today is Nathan Weinbender. He is the music and film editor at The Inlander. And my connection to Nathan is I taught him everything he knows about <laughs> film. And life. <laughs> uh, he was my student uh, for a writing about film class. Lewis and Clark High School, and that's when we met, and we realized that we shared a lot in common in our interests and everything else. So, welcome, Nathan Weinbender. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. of course. This is fun. Uh, the first thing I want to mention is something that uh, I use you as an example uh, in my classes because one of the things that schools are starting to do that now is they're pushing students to go to college um, kind of for whatever reason, whether they want to or not. And you took a, a, a circuitous route or a non-traditional route mm -hmm. to get to your position at the Inlander. So I'd like you to talk about how you went from not going to college, never having gone to college, mm -hmm. to being in a position where uh, probably very few people uh, have that background. Yeah, I mean, uh, what I wanted to do right after high school was go on to film school and become, you know, the next great director. And uh, I, I wanted to go to USC or I wanted to go to LMU. And I just didn't have the, the grades to get into either of those colleges. And I think it's because I mostly, you know, kind of slept through uh, junior and senior year of high school, which is uh, uh, coincidentally when I had Eric as a teacher. Um, <laughs> Uh, although I don't think I skipped any of your classes, so uh, you're welcome. I guess. It's an, it's an, I'm sure it's an honor. Um, and so I, I think I decided at that point that I was just going to take a year off. I was going to kind of do my own thing. Um, and then that year turned into two years and then three years. And then I just kind of never went back. It's something that's still um, that does still eat at me occasionally where I think, you know, I should probably have that you know, as a backup in case things go horribly wrong, because as this year has taught us, things can go horribly wrong at any given moment mm -hmm. and having a backup plan would be nice. But um, yeah, I just kind of started doing, you know, odd jobs. I worked at the Magic Lantern for a while. I worked as a PA on a film set. Um, and then eventually I started working at the, uh, at the Spokesman Review, but um, I got a job in the circulation department. So mainly just answering phones and placing classified ads and that sort of thing. And because of my connection with uh, Spokane Public Radio, am I allowed to mention them on, on KYRS? <laughs> absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've also... Uh, the for, Seattle to our Spokane. Uh, yes, exactly. Yes. Um, uh, uh, you know, for a long time, I was doing uh, film stuff for uh, Spokane Public Radio since I was in high school. I just happened to know people that uh, were involved with uh, one of the shows on there, Movies 101, which mm -hmm. still exists and which I still co-host. Um, and so I would just kind of occasionally fill in on that show. Um I think they saw this kind of precocious kid who really didn't have a life and just watched movies all the time. And so I had this kind of knowledge. I just kind of taught myself this stuff. And so, uh, you know, I started freelancing uh, at The Spokesman uh, in my spare time. And then eventually um, they sort of rebranded their their uh, weekend art section, which is called uh, Seven, still is. Um, and there was an entertainment writer position opened and I, they asked me to apply for it and I got the job. And then from there, uh, the Inlander sort of poached me, I guess, if we're going to use, uh, industry, uh, terminology. Um, and so, yeah, that's where I am. So sort of a, kind of a self-taught route, but, you know, I try and read everything I can and see everything I can and, and, and talk to as many people as I can about, uh, you know, art. Uh, and so, yeah, that's sort of how I got to where I am. Now, there are a lot of people who like movies but don't have the writing talent. Is that something that just kind of came naturally to you? Is that something that you're always a good writer or are you just a good writer about culture because you're interested in it? That's a good question. I mean, I think in, in our line of work, you have to be able to adapt and write about anything that gets thrown at you. So, I mean, at The Inlander, we're all kind of writing in in all kinds of different subjects. So, even though we mostly stick to our main kind of 
you know, uh, our, our main sections so news writers, write news and culture writers, write culture. Occasionally there is, you know, overlap where I'm working on a news story or one of our news writers is contributing to a film review or interviewing an artist and talking about their work. We do lots of stuff with the food scene. So we're constantly going to restaurants and writing about that. So I think you do have to be versatile in that way, but, um, I don't know. I mean, I think writing talent is, I don't want to say it's one of those things where either you have it or you don't. But I do think that if you're a naturally good writer, the only way you can go is up. I think there probably are people that that start and, and aren't that great, but hone their craft and just do it over and over again and get people to read and uh, read their stuff and give uh, critiques on it that, that can eventually get to the point where they're, you know, publishable. I, I think that anything's possible, really. But I think it, it's a combination of not only knowledge and and, you know, kind of having the ability to to come from a place of of expertise and experience but also being able to kind of put it in a way that is engaging and um and readable because i mean you can blather on as much as you want on your live journal or your blog or whatever and that's fine but if you're going to be in print like you got to have a you know, a way of, of sucking people in to get people to start at that lead and read all the way to the end, even if it's about a subject that maybe they wouldn't normally be interested in. So I think you just have to kind of keep doing it and, and occasionally turn in really bad copy mm -hmm. in order to get to the point where you're turning in consistently good copy. Uh, and you mentioned earlier that you were a PA on a film set. Yeah. And uh, we don't need to talk about that because you've talked about that before. That's where you met uh, Stormy Daniels. Correct. BFF Stormy <laughs> yes. Daniels. Yes. Yeah. I, I uh, recall that. Did story. <laughs> that make you um, wish that you were in the film industry more or did it make you think, I'm really glad I didn't pursue this? The or latter. Really? The latter, actually. Um, uh. I, I, I think, uh, by the way, I want to... Uh, uh, say something here is that despite the fact that Stormy Daniels was in this film it was not an adult film set that I worked on I want to make that very clear uh, but you can look up the film and, and, and see it she had a cameo appearance in it um, I think that was an experience where it, it was also an unusual experience because this particular film um, it was a uh, a, a troubled production. It was one of those instances where the writer-director was being told no a lot. Um, entire pages of the script were just being ripped out and <laughs> saying, yeah, we don't have the money to film this. I think we went through three different first assistant directors on that set, and it was only like a, you know, two and a half week shoot. It was, it was not a long shoot. Uh, at the beginning of the production, uh, PA, by the way, is, is production assistant. You're basically the gopher on set. You're running around doing all kinds of menial tasks. Um, at the beginning of the production, I believe there were three of us. By the end, I was the only one left. The other two <laughs> walked off the set. Um, and I just kind of saw, you know, being on the ground and kind of like catching conversations that I probably wasn't meant to hear and just really seeing that like this wasn't about the art of telling this person's story. It was really about how can we turn this around as quickly and cheaply as possible? It definitely de-romanticized <laughs> the entire process. And also working with really talented crew members who had been doing this for years and all started as PAs and now they're like, you know, hauling cables around. It's like, that's really what the film industry looks like. There, it, you know, there are a few people that do eventually get up to the rarefied ranks of, of, you know, great filmmaker or great cinematographer, but Mostly it's, you know, you're doing the, the hard on the ground work, which I think is, is great. Like, you know, it definitely gave me a new appreciation for how movies are made and how many people it takes to just make, you know, one shot work. Um, you, th there, there are things you see on a set. Like I, th there's this one detail that always sticks out to me where there was a dinner scene and I remember seeing the prop guy bring out plastic ice cubes to put in the glass because real ice cubes obviously would melt and the continuity would be all screwed up. And, and so now every time I see a glass in a movie, I think about <laughs> the work it takes just to make sure that that glass is right. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's little things like that that definitely, um, it, it gave me perspective, but it also, I, I think it made me kind of shy away from trying to to go after that dream. Did it make mm -hmm. it harder to pan crappy movies now that you see just how hard it is to make them? Hmm. Um, no. <laughs> Although it, uh, I mean, if a movie is bad, it's bad. And, you know, I think the thing that, that I always come back to is, you know, they're asking you to pay for it, you know. So I think if you're going in and, and paying to see something that's bad, you know, you, I, I don't feel horrible calling that out. But um, it definitely makes me think before I 
pan certain elements of a film, maybe, where I'll think, you know what, maybe that day uh, it was just a really hard day. And, uh, you know, so I, I definitely think about that sort of thing. But I can't let that, you know, uh, make me too nice yeah. or, you know. When, when did you, like, discover that, man, I really just enjoy watching movies and, and just getting intrigued by the whole thing? I mean, obviously, I have a passion for it. And as Eric has talked before, you, you came into his class already with an expertise about that. Like, when did that start? I, you know, that's a good question. When I was a really little kid, I was, I was a constant reader um, to the point where my parents would be like, you're grounded from books uh, because you have to go outside and like <laughs> play with other kids and get some sunshine. Um, that was sort of my thing. And then I think I started getting really into movies by like the end of elementary school. And I don't know specifically what it was that, you know, made me take that pivot. But the movie that I always point to whenever somebody asks me this is like, you know, kind of like the, the very first film that I ever like really paid attention to where I thought this is a film where with actors and a director and, uh, you know, people made this was, uh, the Poseidon adventure, which is a 1972 disaster film. <laughs> and I first, I, I became obsessed with this movie when I was like seven or eight years old. Now this would have been in the nineties when the Poseidon adventure was not relevant <laughs> in any way whatsoever. <laughs> but, my parents took us to uh, uh, California, uh, you know, to go to Disneyland and, and Universal Studios, and we went to uh, Hollywood Wax Museum, and they had a Poseidon Adventure room. It was like an entire room, and they recreated, you know, oh. one of the upside-down sets, and it was, you know, a wax Ernest Borgnine and a, <laughs> a wax Gene Hackman and a wax Stella Stevens. And as a little kid, I was just, you know, there were, there were flames and, and water everywhere, and I was just, you know, completely taken by this room. And so I wanted to see the movie that it was based on. And so I think it came on, you know, HBO or something. Yeah. My parents taped it off TV and then I just watched it over and over again. And I still to this day don't really know what it was about that movie that 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 really stuck out to me. Of course, I like, you know, I own it on Blu-ray and everything and I still rewatch it occasionally because <laughs> it's got that nostalgic thing. But I think it's because as a film, it's, it's very involving. It's very um, kind of primal in its conflict which is we have to survive and i think even a kid can understand that and each scene is like a different level in a video game or something where each scene they there's like a new thing that they encounter where it's like okay in this scene we have to swim underwater in this scene we have to jump over flames in this scene we have to climb up a thing <laughs> and so i think i might have responded to to the physicality of it but from there it just kind of continued where you know i would notice actors from that movie and other movies um and which i i guess there weren't a lot of kids movies with Gene Hackman and Ernest Borgnine in them. But, uh, so yeah, like I was always into to older movies when I was a kid and my parents would just kind of let me watch whatever I wanted to at a certain point. I also got really obsessed with Jerry Lewis movies when I was a kid. I don't know. Um, I think it's just sort of like a, I don't know, like a lizard brain sort of thing for me where it just kind of, you know. But you said you, you read voraciously oh, yeah. as a kid. So I mean, uh, in some ways there's a connection. So you already have a good understanding about story development conflict and how resolution and all of that but i'm wondering if the combination of the, the two of those you know talk about your writing ability mm. um you know like musicians sometimes develop an ear they may not know how to read music they couldn't tell you analyze what they're doing but because they've heard a lot of music and that's how they got inspired about it, they develop an ear so you may not have written a lick, but you've developed an ear of what it could sound like just through your reading and yeah. story development. Maybe you, you think that's possible in your case? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that most people, when they go to a movie, they go because they want to be taken away for a couple of hours. They don't want to think about, you know, the fact that their car is parked on the street and they're going to have to pay, you know, $20 to get out of the garage. They just want to get, you know, mm -hmm. transported for a while. I also think that most people, once they leave the movie theater, they don't think about the movie they just saw. They don't sit down and analyze what it was trying to say or what its underlying themes might be or what the filmmaker was trying to accomplish. Uh, I, I think they, they just go for entertainment. I, I think there's just a certain kind of person that has that over-analytical brain 
that wants to, you know, really dig into something once they've experienced it, where it, it's so unusual to me that you would go with some friends to see a movie and not want to go talk about it, you know, over beers or coffee afterward. I just, I can't even comprehend that. Because I think there are a lot of people that are perfectly comfortable never thinking about that sort of thing again. They had that experience. It's like going on a roller coaster. How do you review a roller coaster? You know? <laughs> good, yeah. uh, they, they, they just had a good time. And so I, I, I mean, it seems like kind of a cop out to say it's just, I don't know. That's just how my brain is wired. But I think, I think people would understand that. Like, I, I don't have an ear for music in that same way, mm -hmm. or I can't look at a mathematical equation and understand exactly how it's put together. I, you know, it's like hieroglyphics to me. But in this particular instance, I can look at a film and, and I'm not saying that every film unlocks itself immediately for me. Sometimes I'll see something and have no idea what I just looked at. But there's something in my brain that says, well, keep digging to try and find out what it was trying to say. Um, you know, uh, I mean, Eric and I have had long conversations about people like Charlie Kaufman, who I think, you know, he's one of those artists that I think a lot of people wouldn't even want to bother with because it's maybe too much work. After to, this last uh, movie, I wouldn't blame them. Oh, well, that's a conversation <laughs> for, for another day. But um, yeah, I, mean, I, I think, I think for a lot of people, it's just, you know, it's, it's an escape and, and they don't want something that's that's difficult or challenging. Um, and I actually, the 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 longer I've been, you know, an avid movie watcher, the more I'm okay with that. I used to think, you know, like you know, great art has to be challenging in some way, and that's just not true. The Sullivan's Travels effect. Exactly. That, yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Sometimes people just want to be taken away and and forget for two hours. Yes. Yeah. And if you haven't seen Sullivan's Travels, like check that out. Oh, that's a great. Movie. Uh, Preston yeah. Sturgis yes. had a great run there yes, for a yes, while. Yes, he did. Uh, so you said you're not a musician, but you have. I mean, you have performed music, you've yeah. written songs, you've yeah. made short films. Mm -hmm. So my question for you is, so you write about culture and art, but right now you're not producing any. Do no. you have any aspirations to go back and do any of that stuff that you did when you were younger? Not as much as I used to. I think because, uh, you know, so much of my time is spent consuming culture that the last thing I want to do is make more of it. Um, if, if I'm going to have free time, I would rather you know, dig into a book that I've been meaning to read for a long time or finally cross something off of my to-watch list that, you know, gets longer and longer with each passing day. Um, that's sort of what I would rather spend my time doing now. But um, I do have to say that I will occasionally think back, you know, my friends and I, we used to, you know, every day after school, we would, or at least, you know, once a week after school, we'd like go into somebody's backyard and make like a dumb horror movie and spray fake blood on each other. And <laughs> that was funny. We didn't do it because we thought that we were making any kind of great artistic statement it was just fun and you know i would edit it together and we'd all get together and watch it so yeah i mean i and i guess it's the same thing with making music with your friends right it's it's almost the same uh the same concept but yeah less and less so but um it you know if i were to stumble back into that i don't think i would be uh unhappy about it but it's not really something i think about all that often anymore yeah. Well, and I was thinking too, I forgot to full disclosure, we were in a band for about 10 minutes yeah, together. We, we played one show in my parents' living room. <laughs> it was a good show. It really was. I hate to say it. I mean, yeah. I hate to brag. Did we, ever, did we ever settle on a band name? I don't think we did. Okay. Oh, you know what it was? I do remember. Uh, because uh, our good friend Rob Sugart uh, said that we should be called Puppet Show. Oh, um, after reference to Spinal, Spinal Tap. Tap. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay, so one of the things I want to know is, uh, so you write, but you're also yeah. the editor. What does that look like when you're an editor? What is What is your day, your week look like? Uh, well, I'll respond to that uh, with a with a pre COVID answer because right now I I don't have freelancers, which I typically do mm. when we're not in the middle of a pandemic. So, um, with my sections, because I edit both the music and the film sections, um, I'm writing most of it these days, which means that I have two at least two big stories due every week. So I'm you know reviewing films or or musing on trends or anniversaries of films. And same thing with music or I'm, you know, interviewing filmmakers or musicians and that kind of thing. Um, but in a, a, a typical week, uh, back before everything fell apart, um, it usually involves, you know, looking ahead. Um, and since we're a weekly publication, um, we usually go kind of like months at a time. So I'll look ahead at the four or five issues we have that month, kind of decide how I'm going to fill both of those sections, look at things that might be timely. So if, uh, you know, if there's a concert coming up on that specific uh, week, 
Um, how can we cover it? Uh, do we just interview the artist? Do we come up with some kind of, uh, think piece, uh, related to that artist? Um, and usually with films, it's, oh, this big film is coming out and I have, you know, a stable of freelancers that have seen those movies in advance, which in Spokane, we rarely have, uh, that opportunity, um, who can send me a review and I can run that. So that's typically it. And in terms of like editing duties, I mean, obviously I'm, you know, reading over all the copy, making sure that it's clean before it goes to even more editors. And then I'm looking at the page, uh, after it's done right before it goes to the printer. Um, and I'm also fielding pitches from freelancers and kind of telling them like, Hey, um, I'm interested in this idea. Why don't you think about taking it in this direction instead? And just sort of making sure that everything is, is readable and good. Essentially, you're listening to KYRS Medical Lake Spokane 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine at 1011 South Perry Street and online at SouthPerryPizzaSpokane.com. You're invited to cruise Americana Avenue with me, Jim Tate, in your car or at the office, each Tuesday from 2 to 4 p.m. You'll hear the best in progressive American roots music in a multitude of styles. It's Americana Avenue on your radio station, KYRS. Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just $3 a month helps keep KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting Give KYRS to 44321. That's all one word Give KYRS to 44321. Art Hour receives support from Saga, the Spokane Arts Grant Award. Information online at spokanearts.org. So you mentioned interviews. Uh, yeah. You've interviewed a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, do you have any favorites or least favorites? I had a feeling this question was going to come up because I, I get asked it. <laughs> I didn't it. plan to ask no, this question. I get, well, because I get asked it all the time and my brain immediately, you know, clears all data. <laughs> like the browsing history goes blank. And I, I'm like, who, like, who have I interviewed? So I'll tell you this. Um, one that really sticks out in my mind is Lyle Lovett. Um, and he was actually one of the first artists I interviewed after I got the job at the Inlander when I left uh, the spokesman for, for the Inlander. Um, and it was the reason it sticks out of my mind is because it was like pulling teeth to get an interview with this guy. Um, the, the publicists had told us that we could talk to him. So I had the space ready to go so I could fill it with this interview. And the day of the interview kept getting pushed. The time of the interview kept getting pushed. Lyle's schedule is so busy. He, you know, he, he can't talk on that day. Does this day work instead? And I kept pushing it and pushing it. And I'm new on this job, so I'm, I'm trying to get stuff in as timely as I can and as timely a fashion as I can. And I keep telling the editor, you know, I might have this like the day we go to, to press because they keep pushing this interview. And then at the last minute, they said, you know what? He's not available to talk. He can't talk to you. <laughs> and I had a plan B ready to go just in case, but I don't know something. I, maybe I was just having a bad week, but I sent off a kind of a terse email to the folks at the symphony. They were the, the people that had booked the, the show and said, you know, it's kind of aggravating that they promised us this interview and they took it away. And I'm trying to, you know, promote the show. And normally I don't do that, but in this case I felt kind of jerked around and, uh, Alison Heiberger at the symphony, uh, to her credit, pulled some strings and got in touch with these PR people and said, you know, you really need to like figure something out as best you can. And my phone rang on that Tuesday morning. We, we typically go to press on Tuesdays at like 7.30 a.m. And it was a Nashville number. And it was a PR person saying, I understand you were <laughs> a little bit upset about how this went down. And I said, well, yeah, I'm not going to lie. Dang right. <laughs> um, but she said, would you be able to talk to Lyle for about 10 minutes in half an hour? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I scrambled, you know, to, to get ready and get my recorder going and half an hour passes and then an hour passes oh. and then 90 minutes pass and I'm getting fed up again. 
And then my phone rings a second time, and it's another Nashville number. And I answer it and says, uh, Nathan, this is Lyle Lovett. There he was. <laughs> and so I'm told I have 10 minutes with him, right? So it's getting to be about minute nine. It's a great talk. He's... He he actually uh, majored in journalism. I don't know if you know that at, at no. Texas A and M. So he has a journalism background. So he is just a master of the interview. And it's getting to be the time when I'm supposed to be wrapping it up. And so I say, "Well, my last question is this," and he answers it. And then he finishes answering the question. And then he starts asking me, "How old are you?" And I tell him, "I think I was, you know, 27 or something." And he said, "Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. That was the same age I was when I put out my first album, and everyone said I was too old to start a career at 27." And then he just started going off again, and this went on for another 10 minutes. <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, well, I guess time is not an issue for Lyle Lovett." And so then we start talking about his acting work, and he told me all these great stories about working with Robert Altman and. It was an amazing conversation. I think we talked for about 35 minutes. Mm. He was in no rush. He wanted to know about me because I think he sort of has that interviewer uh, instinct still in his brain. So that's one that sticks out to me because I had to fight for that interview. And then it ended up being an incredible conversation. And I'm now, I, I was, you know, a Lyle Lovett fan before, but I'm a super fan now. Yeah, that's yeah. a great story. Yeah. Now, how about the other end? You ever talk to somebody who was just pulling teeth, was rude, just talked down to you, somebody who was tough? Tell tales, Nathan. Actually, no. Believe it or not, I've never had a really terrible uh, interview experience with a famous person. I'll add that caveat. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? Okay. Uh, that's okay. Because usually there, the thing is, is if, if you're talking with somebody who's, you know, with a major, you know, uh, talent corporation, the publicist is usually listening in on the conversation. So if some, mm. if it's derailing, if the conversation is derailing, they, they'll, they can jump in and say, you know, let's get back on topic or, Hey, maybe. Um, but most of the time they're just, you know, I, they just want to talk to somebody. I, I think I'm sure if you go in and you don't know what you're talking about as an interviewer, they might snap at you. Or if you ask a question that's uncouth, they might snap at you. But I find that if, especially if you ask kind of an out of left field question that's still related to, their uh you know their work like i once interviewed uh joanna newsom the musician and kind of near the end of our conversation i asked her about her work with uh paul thomas anderson because she's been in uh some of his films and uh, he's directed music videos for her and she just kind of went off on this she was delighted to talk about paul thomas anderson and um we actually it, i don't even think we were on the record anymore i just gave her a compliment about her work and we just mm -hmm. kind of had the con so they're just regular people they just I, i'm sure being on the road and constantly being surrounded by sycophants you're probably starved for a good conversation well and being asked the same yeah. question over that and over too. too yeah that yeah. too and so my, my approach to interviews is i mean you, you definitely have to feel it out i mean sometimes you try and be kind of conversational and they're just you know they're, they're just there to answer the questions and that's mm -hmm. it but other times you you really get the sense that the person on the other end is like you know, they actually want to talk about something of substance. Um, and so I try and go about it in a more conversational way. If I have a prescribed set of questions and it goes off in a different direction I didn't expect, I'm going to follow that. Um, I mean, sometimes you do have to get back and ask the question you really have to ask, but I'm not going to follow a script if the script needs to be deviated from. So mm -hmm. I asked about favorite interviews. How about mm -hmm. favorite pieces? Is there a piece that you've written that you look back and you were proud of the work that you did or that was really fun or that maybe got a response that you didn't expect? You know, I was, I had to go back and look. Um, I was researching something. I, I, I can't even remember what the context was, but when I was at the spokesman, I did a lot of uh, theater coverage, local theater coverage. So Pretty much any time one of the community theaters would put on a show, I, I was usually the one previewing it. So interviewing the director or the actors, and oftentimes I would go to review it. Um, and, and sometimes reviewing local productions is tough um, because you want to be honest, but if somebody is miscast or maybe a production just isn't working, I feel – we talked earlier about do you feel bad panning something – if it's, if it's a local production where it's, you know, like volunteer actors and something really just isn't working for me, but I sense it's working for the audience, I almost feel bad panning it because this isn't, it's not James Cameron, right? <laughs> like he deserves any, any criticism he gets. Um, this is kind of a different story, but I'll tell you, most of the theater I saw here from Spokane people was generally very good. Um, occasionally you, you would get a dud, but actually, but quite rarely. 
And I was going back and looking through some of my old theater reviews. And again, I don't have any background in theater. I, you know, I, I kind of had to learn on the fly. They threw me in the deep end on that one for sure. I'll tell you that. Um, and I was going back and reading some of those older reviews and thinking, you know, these are actually really thoughtful and, <laughs> and, and kind of complex reviews for these, you know, local community theater productions. I was kind of proud of myself, which honestly for me never really happens. Every time a piece comes out, I read it and go, Oh, why did I, I use that word too many times? Or this sentence is no good. Or I would have moved to this part. There's pretty much nothing that has been published that has my byline on it that I wouldn't go back and take a pass at again. So do you not look at it anymore then? Are you the kind of person who you're one and done and you don't go back and look at it after it's published? Not all the time. Sometimes I will go back and say, you know, oh, it, um, you know, it happens a lot with movie reviews too because I write weekly reviews for the the public radio station. And sometimes I can't remember why I disliked a movie or why I liked it. And I'll go back and read the review and sometimes I'll read it and think, I can tell that you knocked this one out real quick. Mm -hmm. And other times I'll think, you know, this is actually pretty good, uh, you know, considering. Have you ever changed your opinion of a movie after you've written a review, maybe years later, where you say, you know what, I, w I think I was wrong. I think I missed it the first time. Hmm. Oh, man, that's a tough one. Um, I'll tell you a recent example is um, uh, Tarantino came up earlier, but his last movie, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, the first time I saw it, um, I liked elements of it, but I thought it was shapeless, and I thought that it was in, you know, dire need of an editor. It, you know, it it takes two hours of its two hour forty minute running time to really kind of communicate to you what it's even about, um, and so much of it is just people driving and walking, and it seems so aimless to me. Um, and then once it arrives at its third act, the 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 pieces kind of click together. But then when I saw it a second time. Um, at home, I realized that, like, oh no, the, every piece of this puzzle is is completely necessary to the entire story he's trying to tell. It's one of those movies that sort of slowly reveals itself to you. So I went from thinking it was a deeply flawed, maybe even borderline, not very good movie to thinking this is one of his more interesting, ambitious films. So um, that's a recent example I can think of. I would really like to know... Um so I actually first knew about you through um, Movies 101. Yeah. And and your voice would come on and uh, Nathan Weinbender and I'm kind of going, why do I know that name? <laughs> Not knowing that I was, you know, one of the administrators right. when you're going to right. school with us in Clark. Um, but um, did that, doing that series, you know, and actually having a back and forth with other reviewers – um, help shape your um, your unique voice and how you review movie, movies because I really felt like, you know, I really enjoyed that perspective, your perspective on this, as opposed to somebody that's was much older, you know, but also had very good valid points in that back and forth. I think so. I mean, uh, it also when you're, I mean, I I wouldn't necessarily consider it a debate, but it is yeah. it is kind of a debate, especially mm -hmm. if we're you know on opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, in terms of like what we think the quality is going to be. Um, I, I think it, it forces you to sort of hone your opinion to be like, okay, I have four minutes to explain what I thought and why I thought that way. And then somebody's going to come back and say either, you know, I agree or you're crazy. And then I'm going to have to rebut it. So I'm going to have to, you know, it, it, it keeps the gears turning in your head. You have to constantly be on your toes. So I think that helps. It also, I mean, being, being a weekly show, it forces you to stay on top of things. I think if I if I wasn't in the position of reviewing stuff every week, I think stuff would just pass me by and I would never catch up with it because it's so easy to get complacent and just watch the same stuff in the background while you're on your phone or whatever. So and the follow-up to that is I would have loved to been like observing your class, Eric, your, the writing and film, but do you guys have identical or similar tastes in movies and, and development and all the things that go into that? Are you guys getting into those kind of conversations where you're like, no, I'm supporting it. This is Nathan's interview, but before I, before he answers, <laughs> I do want to say that there's a, a psychology term called the narcissism of small differences. And I think Nathan and I are very similar in a lot of ways, but when you're very similar, you take the small differences that you do have and you make a much bigger deal out of them uh, than they need to be. Is that the equivalent of dying on a small hill? Um, it could be in an argument for sure. Okay. But yeah, but it's really more of a, of a, 
I mean, it, it, when you think of religions, when you have these two religions that are very, very similar, but mm -hmm. they hate each other because they are concentrating on that super yeah. small difference between yeah. them. So I want to hear your answer, yeah. though, on this. Um, I would say that I think, well, well, first of all, I think that in the case of most art, when something is really bad, it's usually quite apparent to most people. Most people would see that and say, yes, that is bad, especially popular art. I think it's usually pretty obvious, especially if you're going in looking at it analytically. I think when Eric and I have uh, disagreements, it's usually about, it rarely is it about the overall quality. It's usually about approach or, or theme or tone. It's, it's usually the context of, uh, uh, of things or the way in which an artist is trying to communicate an idea. So I, you know, I, how many times have we fought over the years about funny games, which is this, <laughs> this deeply disturbing Austrian film that's both like a home invasion thriller and like a self-referential, uh, treatise on art and, and empathy and our desire and as voyeurism. humans. Yes. And voyeurism and, and, and our, uh, desire as both humans and viewers for bloodlust and revenge. And I mean, I've had this argument with other people too, but, but Eric and I have had it multiple times where, you know, he thinks that it works really well in this cold, chilling way. And I find it so calculating and pompous that I, I can barely stand it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I mean, I think both of us would agree that it's a worthwhile film. It's a piece of art that if you're interested in art, you should, you should see at some point. Um, although, you know, I think we should warn people that it's, it's, <laughs> it's tough. This is not um, a recommendation. Not, not necessarily, <laughs> but I think that we, we have, differences about whether that approach works he thinks it does and i think it, now, it doesn't you said something about when people see see bad art they kind of sort of universally agree and i i'm not so sure about that because okay. sometimes i mean and i just throw this out um i'll see uh people will see art you know like maybe uh, a broomstick or a mop in a bucket and it's you know yeah and people kind of <laughs> wonder I really don't get this. Yeah. I really don't understand it at all. But it, it's like the emperor with no clothes. I don't want to really admit in front of other sophisticated people you, that this sure. is something I don't understand. So they kind of buy into maybe I'm going to hedge my way into this is great art. Well, it's in, a, it's in a gallery, so it must be good, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Do you see the same thing with film, though, with art film? I guess when I was saying... Uh, I think everybody would agree. I think I'm probably thinking more about the critical establishment, the idea that that more often than not, you know, we have all these aggregate sites now that tell you, you know, if a movie's fresh or rotten or what have you, and it's kind of the old Siskel and Ebert, you know, it's mm -hmm. either up, thumbs up or thumbs down. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, I mean, those guys agreed more often than they disagreed. Uh, most of the time, when you see a movie as fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, it's because most people agree that it's it's worthwhile or interesting. Occasionally, you do get something that is totally divisive, where it's split right down the middle. I find that that's becoming rarer and rarer mm. these days usually the the you know it's it's usually pretty clear what the establishment thinks i think you know to to go along with what you're saying on the complete flip side of that you look at something like you know uh, a transformers movie or you know some kind of michael bay monstrosity which all the critics say is total crap and then every week it's making you know 200 million dollars so people are going to see it even though the critical establishment is saying it's bad. So who's right and who's wrong in that sense? You know, who is that movie being made for? Well, I guess for the people that are shelling out the bucks to go see it. Uh, and, and I think that a lot has been made about that divide between, you know, uh, critics and audiences and this idea of a critic proof film where, mm -hmm. you know, a Marvel movie can get terrible reviews, but audiences are still going to show up to see it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm still not sure, you know, what the differentiation is there, but it's an interesting one. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, but yeah, I, I don't have a good answer other than I think, you know, um, yeah, I, I guess I don't have a good answer. Well, and I think you and I are both big Roger Ebert fans. And yep. one of his criteria was, uh, his big criteria is, did the movie accomplish what it set out to accomplish? Right. Uh, and hey, but I want to quote him because he would always say, it's not what a movie is about, it's how it's about it, which I think is a very, a, a beautiful distillation of, of, I think how he approached film and I think how a, a lot of us do, you know, the people that, that studied his work and revere it. Well, and Mike's question leads kind of to the reason why we thought to ask you to interview is mm -hmm. you had just published a piece about Rolling Stone's 500 best albums, a yep. brand new one that mm -hmm. came out. Yep. And one of the things you mentioned in your article was lists are kind of fun and they're designed to be argued about. Yes. And this one is no different it's yep. designed to be argued about yes. so uh tell us about that piece yeah. uh, and okay. tell us what 
you thought about what Rolling Stone did. Sure. I mean, uh, and I talk about this in the, the article, but I'll just kind of give a Notes version is that when I was in high school, I think the, uh, the original Rolling Stone 500 greatest albums list came out. Um, and it was one of those, those pieces of, of, uh, criticism and journalism that I really clung to. I mean, there were albums on there that, that I had never heard of, like, you know, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys or the Velvet Underground and Nico or Exile on Main Street, where it's like, I knew these artists, but I didn't know that they had albums. Like, you know, I think, you know, I, I grew up in the era of, of CDs, obviously, but I think people my age, I think we were downloading MP3s individually. We weren't downloading <laughs> albums, you know? Um, and so it really kind of opened up this idea of what is an album and what makes an album good. Cause you would look at these albums and like Exile on Main Street, for instance, which is generally considered the greatest Rolling Stones record, doesn't have any of their ginormous hits on it. And so I, the first time I listened to this album, it was, you know, this breath of fresh air. Um, and so I, I, used it kind of as a manual and, and kind of worked through it and found a lot of all time favorites on it. And they re they republished it in, I want to say 2013. And the, it, it was more or less the same list. Uh, there, there are a couple of, of changes, but they're very minor and, and hardly noticeable. Then they came out with this third edition and it's completely unrecognizable mm-hmm. from either of the two iterations that came before it. And I find that really interesting because Anytime something gets the greatest of all time designation, you know, Citizen Kane has had that for years. Mm-hmm. It just becomes fact. And it's an, it's, you know, an unmutable fact. It's, it's the greatest of all time and it forever will be the greatest of all time. And I say, why not change it up? Why not say, you know what? This has been the greatest of all time for 50 years. It's ineligible. Mm-hmm. Like kick it off and it's going to be in the Hall of Fame. Bring in some new stuff. So, uh, the, the biggest change here is that. Uh, the previous two lists had Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the Beatles album, obviously, at number one. And now it's not even in the top 20. It got knocked all the way down. And What's Going On by Marvin Gaye is the new number one. Mm-hmm. And for someone like me that, you know, really studied that list. And and I want to be up front and say the list itself is deeply flawed from the outset. You know, I've realized that now that it's, I mean, Rolling Stone is like the most mainstream rock criticism that you can get. So their list is obviously very mainstream. And this new one isn't much less mainstream. Um, but I find it really exciting that, you know, there's this huge shakeup that the top 10 greatest albums of all time looks nothing like the top 10 greatest albums of all time from less than 10 years ago. I, I, I find that really interesting. So I think it made me think about, you know, um, who gets to decide what's canon, who gets to decide what's in the hall of fame. Usually it's the same gatekeepers. It's been the same gatekeepers. And we've been having that conversation about diversification for a long time now. And I think, you can see the result of that diversification in this new list. It's it's all over the place in terms of genre, in terms of um, you know uh, how new the albums are. There are lots of newer albums in the top 100, and you know people were clutching their pearls on the Facebook comments. <laughs> how can you put you know Kendrick Lamar in the top 20? And I say, why not? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Chuck Klosterman came out with a book not too long ago. Can't remember the title of it, but the gist of the book was. Um, what if you know? What if what you always thought you knew to be true was wasn't true? Yeah, and he and he brings up examples like Mozart and people that we now would consider you know Bach, Mozart, you know Beethoven. But the fact of the matter he brings up is that there were a lot of other musicians that were very you know more actually more popular even at the time. But what is it that? transcends you know like centuries you mm-hmm. know like, like a century from now what would even people look back at this century as as being who who were the the great artists you know i always a- wonder that that's, that's such an interesting thing to think about because you know you look at like if we're just talking about music i mean you look yeah. at like an oldies station mm-hmm. and an oldies station has such a narrow view of what what was actually on the radio in the 50s or 60s or 70s. I mean, all these stations now are getting newer and newer. So now you're hearing like (laughs) 80s stuff. Um, But, uh, you know, their songbooks or their libraries only include like a couple thousand songs. So, you know, I really like to go back and look at at charts from, you know, uh, the 60s and 70s and look at, you know, a a top 10. Usually the number one song is one that that 
that's still relatively well known. But the top 10 is filled with stuff where you go, I've never heard of this song. And you listen to it and it's the weirdest thing you've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. And you think, why isn't this still sticking around as, you know, if nothing more than just an oddity of the time? You know, you think of the uh, black blues musicians, you know, in the 30s, 40s, even 50s, you yeah. know. And it was basically that music was was influenced all the British rock music, but oh, they stole them blatantly in yeah. some cases. Yeah. Then you go back and go, you discover, you look in some of these YouTube uh, videos of these old artists, and you go, oh my God, that was so such a progressive kind of a sound. Yeah. And, and you never even knew about those yeah. musicians. Well, yeah, you look at people like Sister Rosetta Tharp or, mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, I think even people like Robert Johnson was somewhat unknown <laughs> until, you know, the, the, the British guys right. of the, of the sixties and seventies mm -hmm. kind of, uh, you know, shone a light on him. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I also think about the fact that like, you know, you go back to that era and there was so much less art there and, and so much less art that was being committed to tape or to wax now. Mm -hmm anybody can can record something and, and put it out into the world and so i think it's going to be really interesting to see how you know a hundred years from now our current time is going to be um you know preserved because there's so much stuff it's going to get lost and it's out there in the digital ether you know i mm -hmm. i don't know you know what it's going to look like it's going to be, be interesting, interesting to see yeah. yeah i mean i don't know if we'll be there to see it but <laughs> well, we'll put it out oh, there right yeah. now have you ever tried making a list a list of what? A list of your favorite records or favorite oh, yeah. movies. Oh, and... all the time. Oh, okay. What? Uh, I, yeah, I, I'll, I'll usually get... Well, okay, so... I mean, we're talking a real list that you, like, type out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, Well, okay. because every decade, uh, there's a British magazine called Sight and Sound, mm -hmm. um, and they've been running a list since, I believe, the 50s, where they pull dozens of filmmakers and critics about what the greatest films ever made are. And that's basically where... Um, the idea that Citizen Kane is the greatest film ever made, that's basically where that started. Um, and it topped the list for decades until this last list when Vertigo uh, knocked it out of its top slot. And that was also a big deal at the time because it was like, can you believe Citizen Kane is not the number one sight and sound <laughs> film anymore? But I have always thought, you know, if I had to vote, if I had to pick 10 movies that I would submit to this, what would I pick? And I usually get like seven movies in and then realize I have no idea what the other three are going to be. Because either I have too many options or I realize, well, I haven't included a movie by this person or I haven't included a black and white movie or I haven't included a foreign movie and I have to include that. And I think, well, do I have to? Like, if that's my top 10, that's my top 10, right? So you kind of get in your own head about it. And I'm sure that all of the people that submit those top 10 lists, as soon as they hit send, they go, ah, I wish I'd put something <laughs> else on instead. It's so arbitrary, yeah. you know? And it's all about... Um, you know, what people are feeling that day. And, and I, I also think that, uh, that something that came into play with this, this new Rolling Stone list is that I think a lot of critics were like, you know what? The Beatles are voted on all the time. I'm just not going to vote for the Beatles this time. And I think enough people did it that it pushed them, you know, a, a further down. Cause the original top 10, I think, had four Beatles records on it. Now there's only one in the top mm -hmm. 10. Um, and I think that's okay, you know? Uh, so yeah, it's, it's interesting to watch. The, even the way that people consider lists and interact with them are changing. Uh, what with social media comments and all of that stuff. So, uh, what's the newest movie that's made your top ten? Oh, um, I've got a good one. And in fact, I know you well enough that you will love this movie. All right. So I'm going to recommend it to all you right. as well. Um, the best new movie I have seen this year, I actually saw this last weekend. It's on Netflix right now. It's called Dick Johnson is Dead. Uh, it's a documentary um, by a woman named uh, Kirsten Johnston, John Kirsten Johnson, I should say. Um, and it's it's a really interesting film. It's sort of like a mixed media kind of thing where she is following her father, her elderly father, who's a retired psychiatrist, and he's starting to succumb to uh, Alzheimer's. It's you know kind of the early onset. He's he's starting to lose his faculties a little bit, and so she's kind of documenting that experience of moving him out of his house and into her apartment and having to take away the car from him because he's, you know, he's getting into almost horrible accidents and sort of watching as this man that she loves and respects kind of disappear from her. And meanwhile, she's also staging these elaborate fantasy sequences 
um, in which he goes to heaven and all of these things that he wishes um, he had had on earth or in heaven waiting for him. And then uh, uh, on the flip side of that, she's also uh, staging these horrific death sequences in which, for instance, he'll be her father will be walking down the street and a window air conditioner unit will fall out on his head and kill him. Um, and her father is the actor in all of these scenes. So she's sort of, you know, reenacting all of these horrific things. And so it's, it's a really fascinating study of, um, of how we consider death, but also how, how we, we film it and how we, how we film each other and, and document each other and preserve, you know, things as they happen in real time. And she's talking about the fact that her mother also had Alzheimer's her late mother, and she has very little footage of her. So this is almost her way of, kind of making up for that um and there's a sequence at the end where they stage a fake funeral for him um and let all of his friends kind of come and pay tribute and even give uh uh speeches about their dead friend and he's like tom sawyer in the back you know uh watching all of this go down (laughs) and that sequence i'm telling you i am not a movie crier but this scene Mm. ooh, did it get me (laughs) and it does this thing where you will be in tears and then a moment happens that is so gut-bustingly funny that you're just swinging between mm. these two extremes and so it's a really unusual film um uh, it, it does kind of take a while to warm up to its weird frequencies but by the end i loved it so much dick johnson is dead it's on netflix it's mm. just great i'll put it on my list yes yeah. now make it top priority it's okay really good i will i will uh was one thing we talked that we uh, talked about what we were going to talk about and we haven't done it yet is kind of the state of the art of the arts in yeah. Spokane. Good and there's something coming up that you're writing about and that you're involved in. Tell us about that. Well, so I mean, I, I don't think it's news to anybody that live music has just not been uh, a thing since March. Um, and uh, I've written a lot of pieces in the last few months about what musicians are doing to combat that. And, a lot of them are going to social media or, you know, um, uh, doing live streams where mm-hmm. they're, you know, performing in their living room or something, you know, on, on Facebook Live and opening it up to donations and requests and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I, I think it's gotten people by in terms of, you know, keeping themselves limber musically, but mm-hmm. obviously I don't think it's making anybody that much money. Um, but there are a couple new uh, live stream series that are about to debut, uh, one at Lucky You Lounge uh, and another at Nito Burrito Baby Bar. Um, and so if you go to their uh, social media pages, you will see those links. And so um, I'm working on a story right now about that. And um, it seems to me, you know, talking to artists, one of the questions I usually ask them or it just kind of ends up coming up in conversation is, well, once we get back to normal, whatever that's going to look like, do you think live streams or, you know, virtual shows are going to become the new normal? Do you think that even when we're able to gather again in large groups, that there will be an option to watch this show mm-hmm. at home? And maybe, you know, you can buy a $50 ticket and go see the band in person, or you can buy a $20 virtual ticket and watch it, you know, on your couch. Maybe you have kids, or maybe you just can't go out that night, but you don't want to miss that band. And it seems like that that could be a thing from here on out. And I mean, I, I don't think it's that much different from the way that the, the film industry has, you know, kind of evolved over the years where the window between a movie playing in theaters and coming out on DVD or streaming has gotten narrower and narrower. And now there are movies that will come out in theaters and, you know, on, uh, on demand platforms on the same day because the studios and distributors recognize that there's enough of a demand that people would like to watch this movie, but maybe it's not playing in their city or maybe they can't go to the theater. And I think that's going to apply to, to live music as well. Obviously, it's different than a movie um, because it's, you know, it's an experiential thing. It's a one-time thing. But um, I, you know, I, I wonder if it's something I would do. It, I, I always ask that. Like, would I watch a live concert at home if it was $20? If it was a band that I really liked and for whatever reason I couldn't make it out or I couldn't pay that ticket price... I might drop the $20 to watch it, you know, have it on in the background mm-hmm. and, and just kind of listen to, to what the band is up to. I guess it depends on if the technology, right. you know, is, is good enough for that. So I was wondering, cause I, uh, funny you should mention that because talking to Carly here the past week, uh, about a, a project, which they're, that the live stream that they're doing, uh, part of the project is to improve on the technology, you know, like she says, you know, 
since COVID, you know, all the artists are trying to do these things and some of it's good, but the technology is keeping it from being better. So this right. is an, exp this is actually a process to see how we can improve on that. And from what I understand, their live shows are, they are pre-recorded, but they're recorded live. Right. Um, so it'd be like watching a concert yeah. film, really, but they're, you know, they're filming it and editing it like it's a live mm -hmm. TV broadcast. So you think about, um, you know, would you pay money to do this even yeah. after COVID if this technology would be, you know, worthwhile to pay money for. And I think, you know, like, well, let's just say Tom Waits was going to do one in his living room with just close friends around, but he talks about how he came up with the songs and all of that. Like you an know, unplugged kind like of thing. Like a very unplugged yeah. thing, but utilizing the best of real time technology and sound and all of the stuff that would go into that. You know, I, I can see where um, this could actually go that direction in conjunction with live performances. Right, because I you know, we you know, we can't not talk about this and and or we can't talk about this and not mention the fact that, you know, ticket prices are going up and up and mm -hmm. up especially for big touring acts. I mean, it's the only way they're able to cover all their costs. So if Tom Waits came to Spokane, I'm sure you'd have to drop at least 100 bucks a ticket because it would probably be at a at a at one of the nice venues in town, it right. would be a smaller audience. Right. Um, and if you wanted a decent seat, you'd, you'd have to drop at least, you know, $100. Um, and that doesn't even account for the fact that, you know, all those bots come in and steal up all the, <laughs> mm -hmm. the good seats <laughs> right. in advance and then sell them at uh, – that's another issue entirely. So, you know, if you had the option of saying, well – Tom Waits is going to be in Spokane, and I would also freak out if that happens. So I, I get what you're, I, you know. I would I would drop a hundred dollars to see Tom Waits, um, but if there was an option of like maybe it was a night that I couldn't go, or you know any other uh, situation, if I could drop twenty dollars or even thirty dollars and have people over, you know, safely, obviously, mm -hmm. um, I I don't think that's a bad option. And I mean, if that money is just going right to all the places that right. a ticket. Uh, the ticket price would go. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's a bad alternative. Yeah. So you're writing about these two new series. Yeah. Uh, when will that piece come out? Uh, that is coming out in next week's Inlander, which is October 15th. Okay. The street date for that. Which is the date this uh, is going to air. Well, perfect. You yeah. can get it right uh, now. <laughs> yeah. uh, what else are you working on? Anything interesting? Um, let's see. Um, <laughs> well, I will say that there, speaking of concert films, there's a new David Byrne concert film coming out. Oh, so, American Utopia. American Utopia, directed by Spike Lee. And I actually saw that show. I didn't see the, I didn't see it on Broadway, but I saw the touring version of that show. So I'm really curious to see how, um, Spike captured that. So I'm, I'm thinking about some kind of David Byrne related piece. Maybe, you know, um, how he changed, uh, the way we consider, you know, recorded performance or, or even just, stage direction in general um and then uh springsteen has a new album coming out and i want to do something springsteen related but see this is kind of uh, you asked earlier you know what's my what what does my week as an editor look like it's a lot of this of saying well this is happening how can i get this into the paper but not in just a really standard straightforward way um and so i don't know maybe a ranking of springsteen albums or um maybe a think piece about you know uh how he's He's still kind of a political firebrand that even people that claim to be his fans don't realize that he's like a blue collar Democrat and has been since mm -hmm. the very beginning. <laughs> um, and you just see like comments of people coming to that realization with each new Facebook post he puts up. Um, so yeah, you, you, it's trying to, to, to take something that you, you want to write about that you're passionate about and framing it in a way that you haven't seen a million times before. And that's the challenge. And that's tough. Um, because some weeks you're you're struggling to come up with it, but um, that's sort of what I'm working on now is kind of mulling mulling that stuff. Over. All right, hot take. What's the best Springsteen record? This actually might be a hot take um, because everyone always says "Born to Run," but I would say "Born in the USA." That's my favorite. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. I I know, and in fact, you know, when that came out, everyone said that he he was selling out because it had synths on it, mm -hmm. and God forbid, <laughs> you know, you have synths on a record, mm -hmm. and it came right after like Nebraska, and I mean. It, well, I think it came after the the river as well, and that has some sense on it. But um, anyway, this is what my story will be like. <laughs> um, but yeah, Born in the USA is probably my favorite. Um, even though I think Born to Run is probably objectively the the great one, 
Um, born to run it or born in the USA is the one that I return to. You've almost. always liked the controversial opinion. So. <laughs> I mean, it's not that controversial. Like the, true, con- true, the controversial true. opinion would be if I came in and was like, well, it's actually little Stevie's solo album is the best Springsteen record. Fair that enough, would be a hot take. Fair enough. Fair enough. Does he have a solo album? I don't know. He should. Let's find it. Yeah. Hey, it's always good talking to yeah, you, Nathan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this it was, was fun. It was a lot of fun. Maybe we'll do it again when uh, something else comes up. How about next week? <laughs> Sounds good. Same time, same place. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you. It's great to talk to you.